0: We'll do this morning, um, we, over the last couple of months, we've, we've done a few different things, but we've been kind of more or less uh, looking at some passages in the Gospels, uh, kind of centered ourselves in the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've been looking at these passages around the life of Jesus and looking at some of the teachings of Jesus. And we looked at the cleansing of the temple and one of the parables that Jesus taught, and just looking at the words and the deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I thought that. Seeing as though there's two Sundays left until Christmas, uh, and therefore two sermons left until Christmas, that we would carry on the same path. And that we'd look at a couple of passages in the Gospels, uh, two different Gospels over the next couple of weeks, that uh, center us around the Christmas story, the Nativity story, and talk about the significance of Jesus arriving in this world. It's such an incredibly familiar story, but uh, I want to look at a couple of passages that just open some of this up for us in a fresh way, and hope that we can just hear this uh, with with, with fresh ears, so to speak, and just try to get inside this story uh, for the first time. So what we'll do this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, and we haven't come to that Gospel yet in this series, uh, but that's where we'll be, and in particular, I want to look at the first chapter. Uh, the first passage in John's Gospel, which is sometimes called the prologue of John's Gospel, like a little introduction. Uh, Some of you might have been here a few years ago when we journeyed right through John's Gospel, and we're just going to look at the first part of it this morning, which just gives us a whole new, big, huge perspective on the Christmas story and the significance of Jesus coming into this world. So, Jacob Mander is going to come and read this passage for us. Thanks,
1: Jacob. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth.
0: Hmm. Thanks, Jacob. Great job. All right, I thought we might start with a little pop quiz this morning, and maybe you could see this as a warm-up for the Christmas Eve service quiz, all right, so you just kind of get in the zone here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out the first line of a famous story, and I want you to see if you can guess what the story is, okay, and if you, if you, if you think you know it, just call it out, okay, no hands up in this church, just, just yell it out, yell it straight out. No prizes, by the way, this morning, sorry, uh, but you know, like I say, it's just a warm-up. So, I think we've also got these first lines on screen, Murray. We'll try and line this up. So, here's the first one. Are you ready? Ready, ready? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Very good. Bye. Dickens, thank you. Very good. Yes, this is going to bring out the classic novel readers, isn't it? This exercise. All right, here's the second one. A little bit harder. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man... Who who yelled at it? Sophie, what was it? Pride and Prejudice. Yes, Jane Austen, very good. Single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Truer words were never spoken. All right. Now, okay, kids, kids, here's one for you. All right, ready? See if you uh, can guess this one. The sun did not shine, it was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. Cat in the house. In the house. I heard some kids' voices yelling that out. Well done, kid. I heard some adult voices too. Cheeky, cheeky. <laughs> All right, very good, very good. Some stories are so familiar that we recognize them by their very first line. Uh, And that is exactly what John's counting on when he starts his gospel, that we're going to recognize something with the first few words that he writes. Because he starts his gospel with these three words, in the beginning. And that is the first line of another very famous story, isn't it? Which is what? Yeah, the creation story, the Genesis story. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because we spent three months going through that story this year. If there'd been silence at that point, I think I would have given up and, and gone home. The creation story, that's right. So, so we've, we've, we've spent some time in that story this year going through the, the creation narrative And that's partly why I chose this passage this morning, because of those connections between those two stories. And hopefully you'll be thinking of those connections as we go through. And so John deliberately, intentionally starts, as he's he's writing a story about Jesus. But as he starts this story, he begins at the beginning. And he begins with this other story. He begins with the creation story. And so he takes us right back to Genesis 1, and any any Jewish person reading John's gospel, this would have been unmistakable, that what John's doing is he's drawing some connection here between the Jesus story, the birth of Jesus, and the creation story. He's wanting to connect these two stories, which might seem totally disconnected, but John's wanting to bring these together. And what John is doing, here's the way that he's framing his gospel right from the beginning, is he's saying the arrival of Jesus into the world Is a new creation story. That's what's going on. It's a new beginning for all of creation. That's how big the Christmas story is. This is the perspective that we've got to have. Uh, This is a whole new start for creation. Christmas is not just about shepherds and wise men and baby Jesus and Mary Mary and Joseph. It's much, much bigger than that. That is the immediate story. But what John wants to do is set that story within a much, much, bigger narrative and say that when jesus arrived in this world it marked an entirely new beginning for the entire world for the entire cosmos for all of humanity just like creation had a beginning right back at the beginning now it is being reborn rebirthed renewed restored and that's happening in and through jesus that's the big story. And we've got to keep that big story in mind at Christmas time because that's what's going on. So, John is going to tell the Christmas story against the backdrop of this much, much bigger creation story that stretches all the way back to the beginning. So, that's what he does. He starts by taking us back. And, and John's gospel is the only gospel that does this. He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus, he doesn't start even with the genealogy of Jesus, as other gospels do. He starts by going literally back to the beginning, the very beginning of the whole creation story. And he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, who's the Word? Jesus, yes. Now, we know that from a little bit further down the page. John gets to that, and we'll, we'll unpack that. But the Word that he's talking about is Jesus. And the point that he wants to make right up front is that back in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus was there. That's so important. Do you remember when we went through that series, particularly through Genesis one? And you have God the Father is mentioned, and God brings creation about, and you have the Holy Spirit mentioned too, right? The spirit that hovers over the waters. Remember this? The spirit who hovered over the Tohu Wabohu. You remember that, Jason? Yeah, the Tohu Wabohu. But Jesus is never directly mentioned in Genesis one or two or three. But what John's saying is, he was there. He was right there the whole time. We don't think about him much in the context of creation because his name is not mentioned. But John is saying, no, he was right there. Now, he wasn't at that stage. He wasn't Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't in human form. But he was the Son of God. And the eternal Son of God was there right at the beginning with the Father. And he was god he was part of the being of god father son and spirit they were all there they were all present right at the beginning so jesus doesn't arrive in the story in the new testament he arrives in the story right at the beginning of the story he's been part of the story right 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 back then and john says not only was he present back there not only was he just around but he was active I mean he was involved he was doing stuff look at what John says next he says verse 3 through him that's through Jesus through the word all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made so John's saying Jesus had this active role in creation he was the active agent who brought all these things about that's why John calls him the word you think about that how did god create the world through the Word through speaking, right? So all the way through Genesis 1, you have God said and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. and God chose to create through the spoken word. He didn't just make stuff, he spoke stuff into being. And so John now pictures Jesus being that word that comes from the mouth of the Father and brings all things into being. It's a beautiful picture. He, he pictures God the Father like the speaker the one who originates creation. And he says, but think of Jesus like that word that was spoken. He he is the word that goes forth and brings the planets into being. He is that that life-giving, that world-creating word who breathes galaxies into being, who brought forth mountains and valleys, who brought forth humanity. He's that word. So he was actively involved in creation. All three members of the Trinity were actively involved in creation. Creation is from the Father. It is through the Son. And it is by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. So John wants us to know, Jesus was there at the beginning and he was involved. He was the means by which God created the world. Through him everything was made. Without him nothing was made. Now, I know all this seems a long way from Bethlehem. All this seems a long way from Christmas, doesn't it? It feels like we've gone back into the Genesis series. It feels like we're back in Genesis 1, and why are we talking about all this stuff? And I thought we were going to be talking about shepherds and wise men and baby Jesus. Well, John gets there, but he wants to paint this picture to give us the much, much bigger backstory to Jesus arriving in the world. And only when we grasp this role that Jesus had right at the beginning as the living word through whom all things came about, Can we really grasp the significance of what happened that night in Bethlehem? So that's why we're getting the big picture, and John paints that picture, and he paints it right through these first few verses. We don't have time to work through the whole thing, but he weaves and winds his way through this story, talking about the origins of the the world and Jesus' role in that. And then he brings it all into focus down in verse 14, and this is really the key. This is where I want us to land this morning. In verse 14, he brings it into crystal clear focus for us, and he says, The Word became flesh. Those, I think, are probably four of the most important words in the whole Bible. The Word became flesh. And I want us just to pause and just think about that. Because you can't get to the bottom of that. You cannot fathom the depth of that. There is a world of meaning and significance in that phrase that is just mind-blowing. The Word became flesh. Think about what John's saying. He's saying this eternal Word of God, this living Word of God, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke the universe into being, who spoke stars into their place. That Word, at a certain point in history, that Word emptied Himself And he left his heavenly home and he gave up the vestiges of deity and he allowed himself to journey into this world and he allowed himself to be shrunken down and down and down and down to become a single fertilized egg inside the body of a teenage girl. Now that's unbelievable. Before God became a baby... He was a single fertilized egg. Just try and wrap your head around that. How is this possible? How is it possible that the fullness of deity can be contained within a single fertilized egg? How is it possible that the God, the maker of heaven and earth, can become a single fertilized egg? And yet he did. Within that one embryo, the fullness of deity dwelt. extraordinary. And then that single fertilized egg divided and divided and divided until a fetus took shape. And then over months that fetus grew and enlarged until eventually God was born as a baby in an animal feeding trough in completely unsanitary conditions in this backwater village in an obscure part of the Roman Empire that nobody cared about. And that is how the word became flesh. It's incredible. We call it the doctrine of the incarnation. And there is nothing else like it. There is, nothing, there is no other belief system. There is no other religion. There is no other worldview. There is no other philosophy that has anything even close to this, past or present. Nothing. Christianity stands alone on this point. There's a lot of common ground between Christianity and other religions on different points. But this is a point of departure for the Christian faith. That we believe the God of heaven and earth became a human being. I mean, even in John's day. So in John's world, the world of the first century, the big philosophy at the time was Greek philosophy. It was the world of the great Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and so on. And in their minds and in their thinking, it was absolutely inconceivable that a god, the Greek gods, would ever, could ever become human beings, could ever become mortal, because they believed this world was so corrupted, that matter, physical matter, was just so degraded and polluted that if a god tried to become human, they would, by definition, become contaminated by it. They'd become evil, they'd become corrupted, and so they, they wouldn't be god anymore. It was just ridiculous. It was a ridiculous idea for them. It was laughable. And even today, every other belief system writes this off. Within the Islamic faith, the idea of incarnation is blasphemy. It's considered blasphemy. The idea that Allah would become a human being is blasphemy to Muslims. In the Quran, it describes the incarnation as a thing most monstrous. That you would claim that the great Allah could ever become a human being because the, the Muslim would tell you that it is impossible for Allah to do this and maintain his greatness. It would, by definition, compromise his greatness to do this because he'd become a human being. The Baha'i faith rejects the doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, Buddhist and Hindu faith, uh, they have reincarnation, but that's a very different thing. The idea of reincarnation is a very different thing from incarnation. Don't get those things confused. Reincarnation is the idea that living beings continually have these new lives, and every time they die, they, they come back in some other form. But that's a totally different thing from the one true God becoming a human being. Only the Christian faith has the audacity to claim that the God of heaven and earth became truly and fully human in Jesus of Nazareth. We're alone on this one, and it's a good thing. It's an extraordinary claim. It's a bold claim, but it's a true claim. And here's the heart of it, that God has done this, and he's not given up any of his greatness, and he's not given up any of his divinity, and he's not given up any of his glory. God's become truly human. He hasn't just taken on flesh and blood. He hasn't just taken on a body. See, I think sometimes Christians stop short on this one. And we just sort of assume what well, all God did is he took on a body. So he took on flesh, but really underneath, he was just God. You know, so it's like Superman. If you pull back the shirt, it's the big S underneath. You know, it's like for, for Jesus, if you pull back the shirt, it would have been the big G underneath. Uh, really, he was just God wrapped up in skin. And sometimes that's how we think about it. But John John is telling us, and the Bible is clear, no, no, Jesus did more than just take on a body. He took on a human nature. He took on the fullness of what it meant. I mean, it would have been extraordinary enough if God had just taken on a body, but he took on our human nature, yet without sin. That's important. He didn't take on our sinfulness, but he took on the fullness of what it means to be human. He took on a human mind, a human heart, human personality, human composition, human willpower, human emotions, human experiences, the whole package. He was fully and utterly and completely human. And yet he did it without giving up an ounce of his divinity. Because what happened in the incarnation, here's the theology behind it, is that two natures came together. It was the nature of God, the nature of deity, and it was the nature of man, the nature of humanity. The only being in whom this has ever been true. That these two natures have coexisted and they came together in the one person of Jesus. Uniquely, they're both present, both fully present. Fully God, fully man. They're there and they're inseparably joined together. But he had two natures. One didn't overtake the other and they didn't divide him into two people. He held together these two natures in perfect unity within the one being. Here's the way this is put Uh, most clearly in one of the old Christian creeds, the Chalcedonian Creed. The son is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. And that's a big, long theological way of what John says in four words, the word became flesh. That's it. That's what it meant. It's an incredible truth, and this is what sits at the heart of the Christmas story. And if nothing else, through the Advent season, just try and free up some mental headspace to ponder that reality. Because no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've kind of thought about this before, you will never plumb the depths of that mystery. It is just utterly mind blowing, and we need to spend some time just being blown away by it, being overwhelmed by this truth that the God of heaven and earth would become one of us, would become truly and fully human, and do that for us, for our benefit. So John takes this huge story, story of creation, the story of the eternal living word of God, and he uses that as a huge canvas upon which to paint the nativity story, the Christmas story, so that we get a deeper and richer perspective on what exactly God was doing by sending Jesus into the world. But then, John does something else. He goes a bit further, and he introduces another story into the mix. He uses another story to explain a bit more about who Jesus was and why he came. And he does this in verse at the end of verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the word dwelling comes from a different part of the biblical story. It's the same word that's used to describe the tabernacle, In the Old Testament, when God commanded Israel to build a big tent, he said, I want you to build this this great big tent, and I'm going to come and fill that tent with my presence, and I'm going to dwell right there in the middle of the camp with you. God didn't want to be removed from his people. He didn't want to be separate from them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to be encamped among his people, among Israel. And so he commanded them to build this tabernacle. And this word dwelling is the same word. So what John is saying is God's gone even further now than just dwelling in a tent. His presence is no longer contained in this tent, in this back room of the tent called the Holy of Holies. No, now God has not built a tabernacle. God has become a tabernacle. God has become a living, breathing, walking, talking, eating, sleeping tabernacle whose name is Jesus. And Jesus embodies the very presence of God with us, the same presence that filled the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, but now in an even more significant and personal way. So you could, you could literally translate this verse, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what John is saying. Or another contemporary translation, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. It's a great picture, isn't it? The God's pitched His tent on planet Earth. His desire to draw near to us was so strong. He didn't want to be the distant God. He didn't want to be removed from us. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as another version says. God has drawn near. He has this insatiable desire to be with us, to be among us. It's been that way since the beginning, when He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's His desire: is to be right there with you, and He has gone to extraordinary lengths to do this. By becoming human in Jesus of Nazareth so that he could be one of us, be among us, and have an incredible solidarity with us as a human being. And then John builds on this and he says the word became flesh, he's made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle, of course, was all about the glory of God. If you remember the Exodus series that we did, you get right through to Exodus 40 and what happens once the tabernacle is completed. The glory of God fills the tabernacle. God's glory comes to rest in the tabernacle. But in the Old Testament, only one person could ever really experience the glory. Only the high priest could go into that room where the glory of God resided. And only once a year and only under very strict conditions and with a lot of risk, and only bringing the right sacrifices. But John says, no, no, all that's over now. The glory of God is no longer hidden away in the back room of a tent. Now we've seen it. We've seen the glory of God up close and personal, because we've seen the face of Jesus. And Jesus reveals to us the glory of God. I think sometimes we think that when Jesus came to earth, he gave up his glory. We think that's one of the things he left behind, that he left that in heaven. And he just sort of became human. John says, no, no, we've seen it. We've seen the glory. When we saw Jesus teaching the crowds on the hills of Galilee, we saw his glory. We saw the glory of the Father. When we saw Jesus healing the blind, and the lame, and the sick, and the demon-possessed, we have seen his glory. And when we look into the face of that baby in the manger, we behold the glory of God. When you look into the face of Jesus this Christmas, you are beholding the glory of God. In him, the fullness of deity and the fullness of glory dwells. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son, full of grace and truth. So John is painting these two great stories, these two great pictures, to help us understand the significance of the Christmas story. The story of creation this eternal word of God who's become flesh now. And the story of the temple, the tabernacle, where the glory of God has now taken on flesh and blood and is moving among us and speaking to us. And we've seen him and beheld his glory in the face of Jesus. And as I think about these two stories, and I think about what they mean and the significance they give to the Christmas story, to me it just speaks of God's incredible desire to draw near. Isn't this the whole theme of the biblical story? Is God's desire to To draw near to us. And here's the incredible thing. Because he has drawn near to us in Jesus, he still draws near today. This is the beauty of the incarnation. Because only the Christian faith has the doctrine of the incarnation. And therefore only the Christian faith has a God who has drawn that near to us. Because every other belief system denies the doctrine of the incarnation, they by definition end up with a God who is distant who is remote, who can't understand, who, can't, who hasn't really experienced, who doesn't really know, or if he does, he only knows from a distance. But only the one true God, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, God the Father, and the Son and the Spirit, only this God has become human, and therefore he knows what it's like to live these lives we live, and he knows it from the inside. And therefore He draws so near to us now by His Spirit and He walks alongside us and He understands what we're going through because He's gone through that. He understands our experiences. He understands our joys. He understands our struggles and our pains. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who can't empathize with us, but one who's been tempted in every way, just like we are, but without sin. We have a God who can empathize, who has walked in our shoes. He knows what it is to struggle. He knows what it is to be betrayed by someone close to Him. He knows what it is to have someone he loves desperately sick. He knows what, I'll tell you what's been powerful for Anna and I recently is that Jesus knew what it was to lose a parent. You know, for us having lost Anna's dad this year, and I was thinking about this recently, you know, Jesus lost his dad, he lost his father. In all likelihood, Joseph died when Jesus was in his 20s. That's what the evidence seems to suggest. By the time Jesus gets to his 30s, Joseph's not there. So probably he's died. It's been an incredible thought for us that by the time Jesus started his public ministry, he already knew what it was to have lost a parent. And that gives us such a sense of solidarity that God knows. Not just knows in a headway, but he knows because he's experienced this. He has experienced the full range of human emotions. And he's experienced so many different highs and lows in his own life that whatever you're going through right now, he knows. He knows it. And he's with you in the middle of it. There is nothing that you're experiencing right now that God is not drawing near to you, wanting to be a part of and able to empathize with and sympathize with because he's drawn near to us in Jesus. And you can know that. And you can be reminded that, especially at this time of year, that he is with you. And he is with you in a way that is intimate and special. He understands. He gets it. And he's right there journeying alongside you whatever you are experiencing today. Let me just finish with this final thought. When John wrote this gospel, soon after he wrote the gospel of John, he wrote another book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And right at the end of that book, he brings these two stories back together again in talking about Jesus and talking about God's plan for the world. The story of creation and the story of the temple or the tabernacle in Revelation 21. John pictures this new creation. He's got this vision of what God is finally preparing for for those who love him and God's final plan for human history. And he says in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. There's creation renewed. It's what John promised us would happen in John chapter one, that creation was gonna have a new beginning now because of Jesus. And sure enough, he sees it. There's going to be a new heavens and there's going to be a new earth that come about because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he pictures in this new creation, the voice from the throne says, behold, God's dwelling is now among his people. Same word that John uses all the way back in John chapter one to say the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he says, all the way in the end, when we finally get to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to come down again and he will dwell with us. He will tabernacle with us in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, in all of his radiance, in all of his splendor. And we will say with the Apostle John, we've seen his glory. Because then we'll see him face to face. What an amazing day that's going to be. And so until that day, and especially through this Advent season, I pray that you would be reminded that the Word who was with the Father in the beginning, the Word who became flesh in Jesus Christ, and the Word who will one day return and make all things new, is with you right now. That He is among you, He is within us, and He is working through us to show His love and His light to this world. May you be comforted by that May you be encouraged by that. May you know the God who is Emmanuel. God with us this Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, we just take a moment to reflect on that incredible truth at the heart of it all. That the Word became flesh. God, forgive us for the times when that's become too familiar, when it's become too blasé, and we've just forgotten what an incredible story this is. We pray, Lord, this Christmas you would help us to recapture the wonder, to recapture that childlike wonder, that sense of awe at what you have done and the lengths you have gone. To reconcile us to yourself. To give us new life. And to make it possible for you to be with us right now. Living within us. Through all the experiences of life. Jesus, all we can say is thank you. We're so grateful. And we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.